A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's a proverb of Solomon, David's son, the son born to Bathsheba after the son we heard about in today's story. After he died, David went in to comfort Bathsheba, and she bore a son, and his name was Solomon, though the Lord called him, the Lord called him Jedidiah. The Lord called him Jedidiah, and David called him Solomon. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That's what Solomon says. I can't imagine there was any way David would take this discipline lightly. It's good to review where we are in the story. Two weeks ago, we heard from 1 Samuel about Saul and his unwillingness to repent, his unwillingness to acknowledge his sin, much less to receive discipline and correction from the Lord. He fell deeper and deeper, and his heart grew harder and harder, and the kingdom was taken away from him, and it was given to David, a man after God's own heart. Last week we heard, however, that David was not free from sin, to say the least. His imagination for vice and cruelty 
are gut-wrenching. But when confronted with his sin, he did not harden his heart. He repented. He did not hide it. He did not excuse it. He did not justify himself. He acknowledged his sin, and he knew. He knew that he deserved to die. And God pardoned him. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die, said the prophet Nathan. But although David would not suffer the most grievous penalty for his sin, he had not lost God's favor and he would not suffer eternal death. Nonetheless, there would be discipline. Nathan told him that there would be discipline. God delivers discipline personally, individually, like a father disciplines his son, according to what is needed in order to teach us to fear, love, and trust in him. It is something that God does to us. We often think about the natural consequences of sin, that if you sin, something bad may happen to you, as though the world is sort of booby-trapped with bad consequences for sins. And that's true to some degree. There are natural consequences for different actions. We saw it last week when David slept with Bathsheba. What happened? She became pregnant. It was a natural consequence. And in his case, it was a natural consequence of his sin. But when we talk about natural consequences, we often lose sight of the fact that it is God who disciplines. Every natural consequence for sin comes at the hand of God. And... There is much discipline that God applies to us, apart from nature, directly, because he loves us, and because he wants to teach us to fear, love, and trust in him. And so, although David would not suffer the most grievous penalty for his sin, he would not lose God's favor, and he would not suffer eternal death. Nonetheless, there would be discipline. Nathan said, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who was born to you, who is born to you, shall die. And that is what happened in our lesson today. Now, there are lots of questions that a person might have about this. There are lots of questions that came up as I was meditating on this story. And here are two that come to mind right away. First, if David was sorry, if he was sorry for his sin, why did he still need to be disciplined? And the second question is this. If it was David who needed discipline, how can it possibly be right for his child to die? How can it be possibly be right for his child to die when it was David who should have died? The first question is easier, and it's helpful. It's a helpful question because it gets us thinking about what discipline is for. Discipline causes pain. It hurts, and it's meant to, because that is how pride is broken. It is how humility is formed. Discipline takes away from you your sense of control over your life and its outcomes. It teaches you that you are answerable for your actions to one who is holy and righteous. It reminds you that the Lord is the one who gives, and the Lord is the one who takes away. It does all of that in a way that words, all by themselves, cannot. You can agree, hypothetically, in theory, you can agree that you are not master 
of your own fate. But until the things that you take for granted are gone, until they've gone from you, until you have them no more, you don't really know what that means, what it means not to be master of your own fate. You can agree that you are answerable for your actions, that you are sinful and that God is holy, but until your self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that lurks deep in your heart, until that's exposed, you don't really know what it means for God to be holy and for you to be sinful. You can agree that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but until he has taken away, you don't really know what that means. And that is why death comes to us all. Death is the last stroke of discipline. It breaks your pride. It humbles you. And it teaches you, to the very end, to fear, love, and trust in God. That is why the Lord disciplined David, even though he was sorry. In David's sin, he showed that his flesh was still alive and well. His flesh needed to be put to death so that a new man could live before God. That is why God disciplined David, and that is why God disciplines us. You should not shy from thinking that the things that you suffer in your life are discipline. They may or may not be in direct proportion to this or that sin as it was for David, but you are subject to discipline nonetheless because you still have your sinful flesh that needs to be put to death. You shouldn't shy from thinking that the things you suffer are discipline, that God is giving them to you for a reason, for your good, to temper you, to sharpen you. It's amazing how that realization changes things. When bad things happen, when you suffer, do you feel as though it is senseless? As though it's some accident of nature or just bad luck? Do you feel like you can't understand why this would be happening to you? It happens. You suffer because you have a Heavenly Father who loves His children. And so He disciplines them. You have a Heavenly Father who loves you, and so He disciplines you. That is how he can even use the consequences of sin and evil in this world. He can use even those terrible things for the good of his children. God can take the death of a child, even the death of a child, which on its face is nothing but terrible and the result of sin in this world. God can take that and he can put it to use for good. He redeems it so that it is not senseless or in vain. And how he uses it is often for discipline. Which leads us to the second question, which is much harder. If David needed discipline, how can it be right? How can it be just for his child to die in his place? There are two parts to this answer. And the first part concerns God's love for that child. This is incredibly important. God does not do evil things. He does not commit acts of wickedness. What God does, he does out of love. God is love. And that means that as much as the whole story is an utter tragedy, God was working it together for the good even of David's child. God did not commit some injustice. He did not abuse the child, exploiting him like a pawn for some greater purpose. While God was disciplining David, at the very same time that he was doing this one thing for David, in the same way, at the same time, in a way that is beyond our comprehension, 
he was also showing his great love for that child. We can't see it, but we know it because he is a heavenly father who loves his children. We get a glimpse of that when we understand that for the saints of God, as Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We get a glimpse of the good that God does even in death when we understand that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. The second part of the answer to this question, this question of how it can be right for David's child to die in his place, the second part of the answer concerns God's love for David. Why should the child die for David's sin? Imagine what an impact it had on David. David, who was in desperate straits. David, who repented and needed to bear fruit in keeping repentance. Imagine what it ha- an impact it had on David, knowing that while he would not die for his sin, someone else would, knowing that his child died as a substitute. Who could not learn from this the gravity of sin, the terror of God's wrath, and the desperate need for God's mercy? You saw the lesson David was learning as he lay there on the ground, weeping and praying and fasting and refusing to eat. He learned then the desperate need for God's mercy. Who could not learn from this? The great cost of pardon. David saw, clear as day, the words spoken by God at Mount Sinai, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. David saw that it was not just his own life at stake, but the lives of his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And if he believed that, if David understood that, if he felt the reality of these words of God, then he could also understand God's word of favor. That though he punishes for three and four generations, he also shows love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. This was no trifling matter. It was not a game for God. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The purpose was love. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the goal was love not just for David, but for his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on for a thousand generations. Who takes that seriously? Who believes that God blesses generations beyond imagination for the faithfulness of parents. Who can comprehend that? David gained understanding. He gained wisdom when he saw his child die. He learned that God means what he says. And that is how he could understand and believe God's promises. God means what he says. David is an example for us of how to repent And he is also an example of how to receive discipline. Notice how his behavior baffled his servants. He grieved and wept and fasted and prayed and lay all night on the ground while the child lived. And when the child died, he was done. He rose, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went into the house of the Lord to worship. When they wondered why he acted that way, he explained... While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? 
Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Those are the words of someone who believes that whatever God does is good. They are the words of someone who is submitting his will to the will of his heavenly Father. They're the words of someone who is being disciplined and who is not regarding it lightly and is not wearied by it, but believes that that discipline is an act of mercy and love. That it is painful for a time, but later it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline is painful for a time, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so David worships the God who disciplines him. He worships the God who causes him pain. He worships and receives his discipline with thanksgiving. That is something worth praying for. It is something counterintuitive, something that we struggle to think of, to pray that when God disciplines us, we receive it with thanksgiving. To pray that God would discipline us as a father who loves his son disciplines. It is worth praying that when you are disciplined by God, you receive it with thanksgiving. That does not mean that you relish it, but that you'll endure it without bitterness and in faith. Trusting that the Lord who reproves his children is the same Lord who rescues and delivers them from every trouble and will not let any evil befall them. Everything that God does, he does for your good. I said a few weeks ago, that a key to understanding these stories is to see Jesus in them. And Jesus is everywhere in this story. To see him, I think it helps to picture him, to picture Jesus kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll hear that in just a few weeks. Kneeling in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus even more so than David, was about to undergo something beyond imagination in its dread, painful beyond comprehension. Jesus would suffer rebu rebuke and reproof and discipline at the hands of his heavenly Father. He'd be disciplined for sins that he did not commit. And Jesus was a new and better David. Jesus prayed earnestly and faithfully sweating drops of blood, believing that whatever God does is good, submitting his will to the will of his heavenly Father. Not my will be done, but yours, he cried. He endured discipline for sins he did not commit, not regarding it lightly and not being wearied by it, but believing that it was an act of mercy and love. Not an act of mercy and love aimed at him, but an act of mercy and love aimed at you. He endured that discipline, believing that his heavenly Father is love, because he wanted that love for you. He believed that though it was painful for a time, later this discipline would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The life that you have in Christ is that peaceful fruit of righteousness. The life that you have by faith in the Son of God yielded, was yielded to you by his enduring, by Jesus enduring God's discipline. Because Jesus endured discipline, indeed the most grievous penalty for your sin. In fact, because he was your substitute, like that son of David was a substitute for him. Because he was your substitute, 
an innocent life for the life of the guilty, a son suffering for the sin of his father Adam and for the sins of his whole family. Because he did that, because he took your place, you can be sure that whatever God gives you is good. You can be sure that as you make your way through this life, you are being shaped and formed, even as you are disciplined. You are being made into the image of Christ. Rejoice. Rejoice even in your discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.